You're listening to the Liberty Grace Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit libertygrace.ca. Uh, Lord, we're so thankful for the summer we've had. Uh, it's hard to believe it's over. Uh, coming to an end. I'm so clinging to another uh, couple days uh, today and tomorrow. So thank you for uh, this weekend that we can take a bit of a break, a lot of us, from our regular activity that we can get some rest. And Lord, part of that is we, we need you. We need to seek your face. So I pray now as we look at your word that you would speak to us and draw near to us, we pray. Uh, be with the kids as they're upstairs as they look at your word as well. I pray that they would have a good time and also a time of getting to know you better, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you are a fan of movies or fiction or books, you kind of know the formula that all good stories follow, right? You begin with characters, and the characters are ones that uh, you're supposed to get to know, at least care about a little bit. Uh, You don't always like them, but you care about them. You want to know what happens to them. And so the beginning of every story is characters. And then what happens is the characters get into a conflict. Uh, There's something that they want. There's a crisis that they face. There's something that uh, these characters that you care about are in deep water. They're in a problem, and you have no idea how this problem is going to be solved. Now, part of this is uh, a good story has you hooked, because that tension is so real to you, and you care so much about the characters that you can't wait to see what happens. How are they ever going to get out of the trouble that they're in? Well, about three quarters of the way through the story or the book, inevitably, there is the climax. And uh, everything is on the line, uh, so it's tense. And you're there, you're watching, you're saying, this is impossible, but you're watching to see what's going to happen. In a good story, not only do the characters get out of the problem, but they're also transformed. They're not the same people that they were at the start of the story. There's an arc, and the arc is not just them triumphing over an issue. The arc is actually them being transformed through the trouble. And then at the end, you have the happily ever after. The characters have faced the trouble, they've overcome a conflict, uh, the tension is relieved, and you're breathing a sigh of relief going, oh, this is so good, They're, this is amazing. They've triumphed over the trouble. Now here's the key, you know that formula, right? Can you think of a movie or a novel that you're reading where this has happened? You guys all look blank, blank faces. Are you, does it make sense to you? Can you? Do you remember stories like this? And you're thinking, this is the arc that every good story uh, follows. Now here's the thing, the really good stories hide that arc and uh, it's not so formulaic because if you're reading a book and you kind of know that's what happens, uh, it's predictable and you're just sort of like you tune out. And so the really good stories follow this arc but add a twist or two to keep things a little bit uh, unpredictable for you. Well that's the shape of a good story and if you're gonna write a novel or write a movie, create a movie, That's the thing that you need to do to keep people hooked. Which leads me to the question that you might not have grappled with yet. What the heck is wrong with Ezekiel? (laughs) Why in the world did Ezekiel not follow that arc? Uh, So many, we're going through the Bible this year. So uh, welcome if it's your first time with us today, if it's your second or third or fourth. This year we're doing a really hard thing. We're going through the Bible from uh, beginning to end. And uh, we're two weeks away from completing the Old Testament. So congratulations. A lot of us have never read the Old Testament before, 
from cover to cover. Uh, it's a momentous thing, so congratulations to you. And what you have discovered so far is, A, it's hard. There's a lot of parts that are kind of challenging. But there's a lot of parts that are really gripping that actually follow this. You know, take Exodus, right? You meet these characters. They're in trouble. They're in bondage. You don't know how they're going to get out. God rescues them, and they get out, and you, you kind of think things are winding down. The happily ever starting. They get into more trouble. So, you know, one of these stories with multiple arcs, but it's gripping. You're reading it, and you're going, what's going to happen? This is a very compelling story. Ezekiel comes along and blows this. And the crazy thing is, Ezekiel nailed it in the first part of the book. So Ezekiel, who is Ezekiel? He's a prophet. Uh, he was in exile in Babylon before the rest of Judah was carried off into exile. So uh, the story so far is like God calls the people. Uh, he chooses them. He gives them a land. They blow it. And he says, I'm done with you. I'm going to punish you. And we're right at the part where God is about to punish them by taking the land away from them. And they're going to go into exile, 586 BC. They're carried off into exile into Babylon. And Ezekiel is prophesying right before this happens to say, you guys, uh, I have a vision of judgment for you, but also a vision of hope that God is going to restore you. If you're reading the Old Testament so far, I don't know what you think of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, as I said last week, is the, if I were to give a one-word summary of what Ezekiel is, trippy would be that word. Another word would be puzzling, gripping. The one thing it isn't is boring. And that's what makes the end of Ezekiel so puzzling. So for instance, Ezekiel, if you read this, God tells him to lie on his side for 390 days to symbolize how many years Ezekiel, or God's people are going to be punished. Can you picture, when I go to bed at night, I wake up, one of the reasons I wake up is because I lie on my arm and my arm falls asleep and then I wake up and I go, I gotta move because I've been lying on my arm for like 45 minutes and I can't move my arm anymore. Is that, am I the only one that ever does? I thank you, there's a few of you. 390 days. Can you picture Ezekiel lying on his side? I have so many questions. Like, I won't even get into all the questions I have of how Ezekiel did this. I would have said, could we just do 390 minutes, God? Like, is that okay? Uh, but 390 days, that's not even the weird part. Like, there's so many weird stories of what Ezekiel does. You, again, you would look at this guy and go, this guy's got suspense down. Hey, like, let's go out and see if that crazy Ezekiel, it's been like 124 days, let's just see. He can't be on his side still. And you go out and he's still there on his side. Another time, God says, Great idea for you, Ezekiel. Cut off all your hair. Okay. No comments, please. Uh, he cuts off all his hair, and he says, this is going to symbolize all this thing. And what he does is he takes part of his hair and he burns it. So can you picture, like, a preacher getting up and doing that? Like, here's a sermon today, lighting a fire, part of the hair, like, poof. Let this be a lesson to you, everybody, right? Like, you would say, this is a weird sermon. This is a weird guy. And you read Ezekiel. Uh, one time God tells him to cook using dung, and uh, Ezekiel's like, God, can we just talk about this? Like, let's negotiate this. Like, I'm not totally comfortable with this. 
Ezekiel is anything but boring. But then you get to the end of Ezekiel. And if you're like me, you're going to feel a little bit disappointed. The buildup is great. So you get to Ezekiel 37, and you have the famous story of a valley of dry bones. So picture, like, you come to this scene, and there's skeletons all over. And uh, so God says to Ezekiel, look at all these bones. Can these dry bones live again? And God miraculously uh, brings them back to life. What's God saying there? I'm not done with my people. Like, they look dead. They look totally dead. I am still going to do something. So, again, pretty exciting, right? You get to Ezekiel 38 and 39. You're getting to the end of the story. And you have an apocalyptic battle. Uh, One Bible scholar says, it's a battle that's worthy of the climax to an action thriller of, of the diehard genre. I would have actually said, like, Lord of the Rings. It's one of those battle scenes that you're just like, I just want Peter Jackson to get a hold of this with CGI effects and bring it to life. Like, can you imagine uh, Peter Jackson recreate these dry bones coming to life and then recreate this battle scene? So Ezekiel's kind of cresting, and he's kind of going like, man, this is going to be a really good ending to Ezekiel. Like, it starts off with lying on his side for 390 days, cutting his hair and burning it, you know, all this weird stuff. It gets to this, these people coming alive and then this big battle. This is going to be a really good ending. Chapters 40 to 48, you're like, okay, Ezekiel, what's your ending? Like, you've got really good stuff here. What's your ending? Let me give you a sample of how Ezekiel ends. Keep in mind, this is chapters 40 to 48. So this is not just like one section, one uh, chapter. This is like chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. Here's a sample. See, like... Just see how gripped you are. Then he measured the width of the opening of the gateway, 10 cubits, and the length of the gateway, 13 cubits. There was a barrier beside the side rooms, one cubit on either side. On the side rooms were six cubits on either side. How do you feel? Okay, is anybody gripped by that? You've got this guy with like a measuring tape, except there's not a measuring tape. It's like a measuring stick, and he's there measuring rooms. Like the end of Ezekiel is like, let me measure this room. Oh, there's a furnace room off to the side, and there's a washroom, and there's a closet, and then there's a stairway, and then there's a vestibule. Exciting, right? Chapter after chapter after chapter like that. Okay, there's more to it. He talks about this prince that's going to come along, and he talks about the sacrifice that this guy is going to offer. This is the offering that you shall make. One-sixth of an ephah from each homer of wheat, and one-sixth of an ephah from each homer of barley, as the fixed portion of oil measured in baths, one-tenth of a bath uh, of each core. The core, like a homer, contains ten baths. Boring. You might wonder, why in the world does Ezekiel end the book in such a seemingly boring way after writing one of the most exciting books in the whole Bible. I met a guy uh, a few years ago, and I got talking to him, and uh, somehow we got into cars, and I'll give you a sample of our conversation, because he was an interesting guy, but I have to say he lost me. We got talking about cars, and he was like, well, you need to understand that I, I need to get a more boring voice here. You need to understand that the 1988 Chrysler Fifth Avenue 
is significantly different from a Toyota Tercel of the, the same year, which is also different, the 1998 Chrysler Fifth Avenue is very different from the 1989 Chrysler Fifth Avenue because they made this significant change to the chassis and the exhaust system. And my eyes start to glaze over like, I just don't care. I'm glad you're passionate about this. I just don't care. Like fix a car. I don't really care about the 1988 versus 1989 uh, Chrysler Fifth Avenue. Ezekiel seems a little bit like this, a little bit too excited about measuring uh, this temple at the end of the book. But here's what you're here saying, okay, Daryl, what are you doing preaching on this passage then? Here's what I've discovered. The seemingly boring parts of the Bible actually can be some of the most important parts of the Bible. Uh, the parts of the Bible that we're tempted to skip over can actually be some of the most critical parts. The parts that make you scratch your heads, the parts that annoy you, uh, the parts that we're tempted to just go, has got nothing to say to me, actually have a lot to say. And Ezekiel is no different. Today's passage, at first glance, seems boring and anticlimactic. But properly understood, it is a fitting climax to the story arc of Ezekiel. I would argue that it's actually properly understood, not boring. It actually is very good news for us. Kind of concealed and seemingly boring stuff. In the end of this book, Ezekiel communicates a message that actually is very important to us, and it's one we need to hear. So here's the essence of the message. Let me just try to break it down for us. First is this, God will restore the world. God will restore the world. In chapters 40 to 48, the temple, the first temple is still there. It hasn't been destroyed yet. Ezekiel's like, it's going to be destroyed. And before it's even destroyed, Ezekiel has this vision of a new temple that's going to be built. Well, what is this new temple? If you know history, uh, the temple was destroyed. Solomon's temple was destroyed. Uh, Nehemiah and others come along. They rebuild the temple. When people see it, they cry. The reason they cry is because it's not as good as the first temple. They're looking at it going like, oh, it's nothing like, like it's a disappointment. Remember the first one? This one's so bad. Well, that's not the one Ezekiel sees. Later on, Herod, around Jesus' time, just before Jesus' time, fixes up the temple to try to please the Jews. He makes it great, so much that the disciples turn to Jesus one day and say, look at this, like, this is, I can't imagine a better building than this. And Jesus says, like, in three days, I'm going to tear it down. And they're like, what? That's not the temple Ezekiel saw. What Ezekiel sees is a, a temple that's completely different from both of those. What Ezekiel sees is actually still in the future, which is the reordering of the entire world. What Ezekiel is prophesying here in great detail is the recreation in chapter 37 of God's people. He's going to bring his dead people alive again. And not only that, but he's going to remake the world. New people, new place, new heaven, new earth, new people. And Ezekiel describes paradise, essentially. Chapters 40 to 48 uh, take two things, the Garden of Eden. So the Garden of Eden, very beginning of the story, right? Um, a little part of earth that's perfect. The rest of earth is kind of wild. God gives Adam and Eve this garden and says, your job is to expand this garden so the whole world is basically full of what this is, cultivate it and grow it, so the whole world is basically my home. Like, 
and they blow it, they destroy that one little piece. Well, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel pictures, he, almost like he takes Garden of, imagery, or Garden of Eden imagery and temple imagery and blends it together and says, God is going to remake the world. And what he does is he gives us an image of a heavenly ideal that will become a reality as God renews and restores the world. Now, you and I would say, I have no interest in the temple. Like, temple was a bloody place. Uh, think of all the blood that was spilled there. That's not what we're supposed to think about. What we're supposed to think about with the temple isn't the architecture. It isn't the bulls. What we're supposed to think about is God lives there. The temple is where God lives on earth. And that's why it was so important. Ezekiel is prophesying a day when God will once again live with his people and it will be like the Garden of Eden, except updated. Unlike the temple of Ezekiel, or of uh, the original temple, this will be a purified temple with a restored priesthood that can worship God faithfully. At the center of this restored creation is going to be God's holy people. You know, it's interesting, the original temple had gates to keep people out. This temple that Ezekiel describes actually has walls and gates, but there's hints in there that the walls are there to keep people in. Now, that sounds a little bit bad, right? Like, um, am I being trapped? Like, is this kind of thing I can come into, but I can't leave? Except, do you remember in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They were kicked out of the garden. Ezekiel pictures this temple where we're so close to God that God has made it so that we can't be kicked out, that the walls are there to keep us in, that we will never be expelled from God's presence. And friends, later on, Ezekiel, Ezekiel's vision is picked up by Revelation. The John in Revelation says, I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be his God. What is the future of the world? God is going to basically take the Genesis 2 that we lost. He's going to move into the world again. He's going to make it so that he's going to draw us close to him, so much so that there's going to be protection so that we can never be cast out from his presence anymore. What's it going to be like? It's not going to be floating in white robes on uh, clouds eating Philadelphia cream cheese one day. You know, it's going to be God coming to live on earth again, and us in earthly bodies actually enjoying the visible presence of God. As Mike Whitmer says, we don't merely hope for the day when we go to be with God. We actually live for the day when God will come to live with us. I have to admit, I'm really mixed. Uh, Todd, many of you know Todd was uh, part of our church. I think he sat like over here a lot of the time. He was our first deaf that we had this year um, in our 10-year history of a church. And I'm so sad that we lost him. He was in his 50s uh, in many ways. I mean, nobody, I, I just can't believe he's gone still. I remember thinking when he went, though, he's seen what I only long for. He's actually seen the face of Jesus now. 
And so I'm not jealous of him in the least. I don't, he had his cancer, I'm not jealous of. I don't love the way that he suffered. But man, he's seen Jesus. And I kind of feel like that sometimes. I, don't get me wrong, I don't want to, I love life. Like, I love being part of this church. I love being married to Shar. Uh, I love my friends. I love my family. I don't want to go. But man, will it ever be a great day? Uh, and by the way, heaven is, when I die and go to see Jesus, that's only the beginning. You know the real thing? Ultimately, when, G, when God comes down to earth, when I get to stand on this earth as a physical being resurrected from the dead and the presence of God with you, that's what I'm really looking forward to. And everything now that's broken, we had a day yesterday where Shar uh, and I were just confronted with some things that aren't right in this world. And we came home last night, uh, we were at a, a wedding, and we got glimpses of like beauty and romance and love. And at the same time, we got pictures of just uh, like things are almost the way they should be, but not quite. There was both joy and an ache in our souls coming home last night. There's this longing, like we're so close, but there's this longing for things to be made right. And Ezekiel tells us, I know. And God is going to see to it that this happens one day. And so much so that he gives detailed descriptions of what it looks like. I think of the uh, song that we sing. I think Chris Tomlin wrote it, but um, Andrew Peterson sings it. Is he worthy? Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you wish that we, you could see it all made new? We do. Like, man, I just want this world to be as it should. We have a longing for the world to be made right, for the world to be made that it, the way it should be. And Ezekiel tells us God will see to it that this happens. He will recreate a new heaven and a new earth. It won't just be like, we'll go to heaven one day. He'll remake this earth. And God will make things right. This is our hope. It's what we can look forward to experiencing one day. And that's why the end of Ezekiel isn't boring at all, because Ezekiel is saying, it's coming, guys. This is what's coming in our future. Chapter 43, this is the second thing that Ezekiel's telling us. The highlight of this new creation will be God living with us. Um, so you remember the other week, I gave you the horrible vision of Ezekiel. Uh, what happens is they're in the, uh, Ezekiel has a vision of the temple. He sees all the bad things that God's people are doing there. And then he sees God. Remember God's glory filled the temple earlier on. He sees God lifting up his glory and moving slowly. You remember I gave the illustration of uh, when you're leaving somebody's house and you're like, oh, look at the time, like we should be going. And you move to the door and then you talk another 20 minutes. And then you're like, well, thank you. And you put on your shoes and you open the door and you stay another 20 minutes or an hour. You guys told me you visited a friend and stayed for like two hours. Like we all know this feeling. That's what God does. He slowly leaves, but it's slow. In chapter 43, it's the saddest thing in the world, by the way, like God leaves a temple. In chapter 43, we read today, verses four to five, the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. And the spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. You know what's cool about this? You remember how the, I just described how the spirit left? How did the spirit leave? Slowly, slowly, like just painfully slow. How does God come back? Whoosh. 
No hesitation. Like, in an instant, he's back. And what Ezekiel is saying is, God is fed up with his people, but he will not hesitate to rush back and be with his people again. Uh, the highlight of the restored creation is that God will be back, and this time for good. How do we know this? Because God says so. In verses 6 and 7, this is what God says. Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name. The best part of creation is not just that the world is restored, it's that God is there. The whole point of our longing is God. I'm fascinated by, I hate, even hate to bring this up, um, I'm fascinated by the excitement over Taylor Swift coming next year. I, he I hesitate to even bring it up. I have not seen this level of excitement for anybody coming to Toronto. Uh, I got people calling me like, could you get me tickets to Taylor? Like, <laughs> could you just sign up? I know you will never go see Taylor Swift. Could you just sign up so that you're one of the 30 million people so that maybe I can be one of the people to come see Taylor? Somebody that used to attend this church one time with, attended a Taylor Swift concert before she was even this big. And uh, I don't know what it was, but Taylor Swift was in something that was over the audience and coming near to different parts of the audience. And so where he was seated, Taylor came like right in front of him. And then that moment was gone, right? The show went on and she began to go in, whatever it was she was in. And he was standing beside his wife and this guy yelled out before even realizing it, don't leave me, Taylor. And his wife looked at him with this disgusted look, like, you know I'm here, right? You know that I can actually hear what you're saying. <laughs> Don't leave me, Taylor. That longing to, there's something in us. I don't know if it's Taylor Swift. This week, Shar and I are going to Syracuse to see uh, somebody who's not nearly as popular these days. His days come and gone, Bruce Springsteen. I still think he's amazing. There's something in us that longs to see, to be in the presence of something that will fulfill us, that will bring us the joy that we're looking for. And Ezekiel says, that longing we have to be close to Taylor or Bruce Springsteen, or if you see a celebrity, the Toronto Film Festival is coming up, if you're in the presence of somebody you love that brings you joy, that's only a slight echo of the joy that we will have of seeing God's presence. John Piper says this, What's going to be the best thing about this new earth? He says the critical question for our generation, for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends that you've had on earth, with all the food you liked, with all the leisure activities that you enjoyed, with all the natural beauties that you ever saw, with all the physical pleasures that you ever tasted, with no human conflict or any natural disasters, would you be satisfied if Christ were not there? If you had heaven with everything, if you had the new earth with everything, except for God, would you be satisfied? And Piper says, no. The only thing that's going to make eternity worth it is that God will be there, that we will be in his presence. Without that, it's simply not worth it. As Piper continues, he says, the glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what forever entertains the minds of the saints. The love of God will be their everlasting feast. Don't you love that? For eternity, your everlasting feast will be God's love for you. 
The redeemed will enjoy other things. We'll enjoy the angels. Can you imagine what it'll be like to see an actual angel? It's going to be very cool, right? We're going to be like, I always wanted to see an angel. This is amazing. We'll enjoy each other. Will we see each other? I hope so. I think we will. But what we'll enjoy the most won't be the angels or each other or anything else. The thing that will bring us delight and happiness will be the very presence of God with us that will not be taken away. Uh, earlier in this series, I talked about the beatific vision. If you ever want to stretch your mind, uh, I think this is something we don't cover a lot. Google beatific vision. It's like the, basically the, it's the theological concept that one glimpse of God will be enough to satisfy us for eternity. But we won't just have a glimpse of God. Like the minute you see God, you're going to be, this is what I've been longing for. This is what I've been made for. This is enough, like this jolt is enough to keep me going for 10 million years. Just this one glimpse. Except it's not just going to be a glimpse. It's going to be for eternity. It's going to be this ongoing sense of like we get to see something like it's too much. Like one glimpse is too much and we get not just a glimpse, we get forever with God. Ezekiel saying, this is our future. God's going to remake the world. You're, the best part is you're going to get God himself. You're going to live in God's presence. You're going to feast on his love forever. This is the future that we're waiting for. Third reality that he gives us, and this is very interesting, and this should change how we live, he says. Ezekiel gives this vision. He's like, guys, God's going to remake the world. It's going to be a new Eden, a new temple, a new Eden. God's going to live here. You're going to be satisfied with his love forever. And then verses 10 to 12, he says, actually, Ezekiel gets instructions from God. Tell people about this. Tell people about this new creation. Tell people they're going to be made alive again. They're dead, but God's going to remake them. He's going to make them alive again. Tell them this. Tell them that I'm going to live with them. And then he says in verses 10 to 12, As for you, son of man, Ezekiel, describe to the house of Israel the temple. Why? God says this, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Did you see that coming? God's like, I'm going to remake this world. You're going to be alive again. I'm going to satisfy you with my love. I'm going to live with you in light of this. Right now, you should be so disgusted with your sin in light of this reality that you're like, done. Like, that's enough. I'm, that they might, uh, they shall measure the plan. And if they're ashamed of all that they are, have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, and its entrances. That is its whole design. Make known to them its statutes and the whole design and its laws. Write down in their sight. Why? so that they might observe all of its laws and statues, statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, it is the law of the temple. Here's what Ezekiel is saying. We went to a family wedding yesterday and uh, talked to the, I was like on a farm and the farm was beautiful. Like there was a dog kennel there and they knew the wedding was coming, so they moved the dog kennel, they planted sod. They said the whole summer they were out there like beautifying the place, and it looked amazing. It was in light of the upcoming wedding, this wedding that they wanted to be picture perfect, that they're like, we're gonna devote our whole summer to preparing to make sure that we're ready, that when people come, they're gonna go, wow, like look at this, this is amazing. And it was, I took pictures yesterday. I was like, 
I'm from Liberty Village, right? I see condos and concrete and weeds. I'm out there, I see country, I'm like, fields, soy, like sunset, like grass. Like, I was like taking pictures like I've never seen soy before or anything like that. It was a vision of the future that caused them to spend their whole summer preparing so that everything was right. And here what Ezekiel is saying is this vision of one day God living with us, this picture of God one day dwelling with us, of God making us alive again, of him making this world right again, of satisfying us with himself, that should change how we live today. Whenever we're tempted for lesser goals, we should keep our minds on one day we're going to see God. Like, I got to get ready for that day. One day I'm going to see God. I don't need to satisfy myself in the muck because that day is coming. I'm going to be satisfied with God and it's going to be so much better. The point of this vision isn't that we argue over our views of end time prophecies. It's not that I say I'm pre-millennial, you're post-millennial, you're a heretic, like we need to fight over this. You can hold your views if you want on that. The goal of that though isn't that we argue. The goal is not that we create big charts and try to figure everything out. The biggest goal of this is that we turn from our sins to God and turn to God, that we treasure him, that we seek God because this new creation is coming. Friends, this is the whole point of the gospel. Jesus doesn't just come so that you can be forgiven. Jesus comes to make you and the whole world new again. Jesus is on a reclamation project because you matter enough that he wants to reclaim and remake you. And this world matters so much to him that he is going to remake it and turn everything right again. Everything that's wrong will be righted. Uh, everything, every ache of our souls will be satisfied. God will restore the world and the center of this new creation will be God living with us. And this should change how we live today. This is actually the climax of Ezekiel. And when I understood it, I realized it's not boring at all. It's actually what I long for. And it's what should change all of our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us this hope. We long for the coming of Jesus. Thank you that Jesus came. As he said, I, I go to prepare a place for you. We thank you, Lord, that this is our future hope, that you are going to remake the world. You're going to remake us. And uh, you're, best of all, you're going to dwell with us. We will see you. We will be satisfied with you. Lord, in light of that, help us to change how we live now. I pray that this would give us such a vision that we don't, sat, we don't uh, just settle for our ordinary lives the way they are. I pray that this would give us a longing for your beauty and your holiness and that we would put away our sins in light of what's coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Pastor Dara, to start off, I have a question for you. So, the common theme running from uh, last week's reading and today's reading is this idea of uh, God's presence. But today, in particular, is more about God's presence with us in the future. And talking about today, sometimes it's, it's very easy in our Christian lives to sense the presence of God when things are going well, when life is great, when we've accomplished our life goals. 
But sometimes that is challenged, say, in the middle of a, you know, difficulty or pain or loss. Um, so how do we reconcile, or what kind of, um, what would you say are some of the uh, healthy spiritual attitudes or approaches we should have, especially in dealing with when we feel as if God is not present in the middle of difficulty, pain, or loss? I think this should give us a longing for that day. Uh, you know, the Lord's Prayer, one of the things that he teaches us to pray is your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. There's a sense in which uh, God's kingdom isn't fully here. It's breaking into the world, but it's not fully here. And so I think there's a sense of incompleteness, right? That we're longing, God, like I want your kingdom to come. It's not, we see glimpses of it, but it's not here fully. So I think this real, like every time we feel that, we should be saying, Lord, come. Like this is not, we, we just long for more. So that would be the one thing. I think that sense of longing is perfectly normal. Uh, the hiddenness of God is real. I think all of us will go through periods where God seems absent to us. That is a regular part of the Christian life. Like, I don't think we should be surprised by that. Uh, and when that is, I think it's like, believe what we know is true, even when we don't feel that it's true. And then just long for the reality of like, one day we will not doubt God's presence. So long for that day. Um, I think we live in that tension right now, right? There's gonna be times where it seems hidden and we just have to cling on by faith that he's with us. Are there any other questions or comments? Yep, at the back, yep. Hey, I'm looking forward to this question. Yeah, so the question is, uh, I think there's a multi-part, like, what will happen? Like, number one, I think I love the insight that on this, in this world, we will never arrive. That, that sense of reality that, that's why I love the vision of Ezekiel. I wanted to preach on Ezekiel 37. If we had another week, the, the valley of dry bones, like, can these bones live? I love that chapter. It's like, it's exactly what you're getting at, that we can't make it happen. God's like, can it even happen? It's like, no, like they're dead. Like can bones live? Of course not. And God's like, watch. And they come alive. So that vision of hope that God can do what we can't do. Eternity, I think, is going to be, um, you know, I, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that I really failed at describing eternity. Uh, I really failed. I tried to describe it to kids. The teachers upstairs, by the way, I can fool you guys much more than they can fool the kids. It's hard to teach kids. Like, a kid asks a question, and you can fake with adults, you can't fake with kids. The kids will just look like at you and like, that doesn't make any sense, and they'll tell you. Um, you guys are too polite, but you might be thinking that, but you're too polite. And so I, I tried to explain it to kids one day. Uh, the best thing that I, the best thing that I can do is to say, A, it's earthly. So. Uh, 
That really helped me because I was bored by the thought of going to heaven and I could never figure out why. And then it was like, I, I finally began to realize that's because the Bible never teaches that we'll go to heaven permanently. It's that God will come to earth. So our future is physical. Your body will be resurrected. You will have, live a physical existence. Jesus, after he's resurrected, eats uh, a fish, which is also cool. We will eat. We will I'll do all many of the things we do here. It will be a physical existence. Secondly, it will be with all the curse of sin removed. So uh, all the consequences of sin removed. No more sickness, no more death, no more uh, conflict. You know, lions lying down with lambs and all of that. So all the conflicts, all the sin removed. And then the presence of God for eternity. That, uh, you know those perfect days you have? Like, it will be, every day will be, that's just like an echo of then, that it will be even better than that. Like, because you'll have God himself. It will just be the presence of God forever. So, uh, I, I know that still leaves a lot of questions. Uh, Randy Alcorn, if you want to read a book about this, two books that I would recommend, Randy Alcorn, Heaven, uh, right, wrote an amazing book on this. Michael Whitmer is the other guy that wrote a book called Heaven as a Place on Earth. Uh, Michael Whitmer writes a lot of books with 60s, uh, 60s and 70s song titles. So there's a, I think, what era is that song? Heaven as a Place on Earth? Is that 70s? Anyway, he took that and uh, he made it into a book, basically saying it's a really good book to picture what it'll be like on that day. So I would say read those books for a better answer than what I just gave. Oh, yes, got to look at the app. Nothing here. Oh man, what will change us? That's a very good question. It might be that. It might be that one side of God is enough. I don't know. That's a very plausible theory that one side of God will be enough that we're like finally cured of sin forever. Uh, the, the theological term is we will be glorified. So uh, Romans 8 has this progression of things that happen. We're in the midst of that, but one day we will be perfected. We will be glorified. Uh, I don't know what it will be. It could be actually just seeing God in that moment. He'll transform us. And our, our, the power of sin will be finally conquered in us. But I don't know. It could be that very well. Like, I honestly think, don't underestimate what seeing God will actually do to us on that day. Like, we have no idea. It's going gonna, it's gonna to blow our minds. So I hate to keep talking about yesterday, but I will. Like, um, because the Bible compares... Uh, marriage to that day, right? And the wedding, like, uh, it, it's like a wedding imagery for the groom. Like, we're going to be the bride, the bride of Christ. Um, Jesus is the groom. So yesterday I had a beautiful picture of the bride coming, the groom looking at her, the groom began to blubber. And we were looking at him thinking, we had no idea you had emotions. Like, honestly, we had no idea. And he's there blubbering out of love for his bride. And she walks in, and the way that they looked at each other, I think on that day, except our groom will be God, uh, we'll be walking in, we'll see him, he'll, he'll be so full of love for us, that will transform us. Like, there'll be something about that moment, we'll be so loved, and our souls will be so satisfied in him that it will change us. So that might be exactly what changes us on that day.